Today on The Black Goat, the year in review, we look back at the year 2017, what was happening in our lives and the world around us, and a letter about how to get started with networking. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. I'm here with Samin Vizier and Alexa Tullett, and I'm Sanjay Srivastava. Um, and uh, it's we're recording this uh, mid-December, but this is going to be our last podcast of the year, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, um, It's been kind of, I don't know, it's been kind of interesting. I don't know that I, like podcasting has become an interesting thing, hasn't it? With, uh, I feel like there's, we started a podcast this year. We're going to talk about the year in review later on. I don't know if we want to talk about starting a podcast. <laughs> I mean, that was like, all I was going to talk about in my year of review. Yeah, yeah. It's like, a, I, no, I, I had dibs on that one, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it, it's been interesting to see there's a bunch of new podcasts as well, right? So yeah. uh, new ones that started up like The Bayes Factor. I think Everything Hurts was around was before around. 2017, yeah. but uh, I, I became aware of it in 2017. So, uh, <laughs> so that's know. all that counts. That's all that counts. <laughs> <laughs> I've been re-listening uh, to old Everything Hurts podcast. I'm like broadening my horizons. I'm actually listening to podcasts once in a while now, but actually only Everything Hurts. It's still the only one I've listened to besides <laughs> ours. But yeah, I'm going back to old ones. It's kind of cool that they've been around longer. So there's yeah. things from previous years. That's an infinity percent increase over your previous podcast listening. That's true. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, the most recent one was uh, where... Dan interviewed James. That yeah. was a lot of fun. That was a really good one, yeah. I guess, uh, yeah. I don't, do you listen to them, Alexa? No, actually, don't answer that. I'm going to get you in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is there is something really obnoxious about making a podcast and not listening to them. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> I think Sanjay, like, saves us in terms of mean social media activity for the group. I'm I'm okay. Like, I think I'm above average. But yeah, like, you, if, if we average the three of us, we're we're good. So he's pulling yeah. your weight, Alexa. Does Snapchat well, yeah, count I, as social media? Yeah. Oh, that's true. Yeah. I don't Alexa's... understand. Isn't that a messaging thing? Yeah, it doesn't count. I, I don't know. I feel like people categorize it as social media because actually some people do use it as a form of social media. So some people will Post you can send publicly? a snap to multiple people. And so like people will like I know people who advertise like things that are happening at breweries through their Snapchat account mm-hmm. or like people will like update others on their lives so they'll send a snap to like all of their friends basically. Yeah. Um yeah. so it's sort of I, so I don't do that. Mm-hmm. Me I think I think it would I think media scholars would say cuz it's a medium and it's social, right? But it, you're right, right that it's like it's different because a lot of it is not public. It's one to one or one to few messaging that's private. Yeah. So that, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, so but. I hear that something crazy happened on twitter that i missed (laughs) i i had a viral tweet my first viral tweet is there a definition for viral like does that is that a meaningful word i i don't think there's like a formal definition but it's like qualitatively more like it's not just it's like that a scree plot thing yeah yeah Mm -hmm. you get right it's it's no that that is like yeah like the distribution of of tweet responses yeah, right. is there's like, like a, a discontinuity in the yeah and, and I'm, I'm this one was way has out it of reached no, ten thousand yeah. yet uh likes yeah yeah. yeah um uh yeah no so so the the origin of this so was, i'm just like yeah yeah it has it's at <laughs> yeah. 50, oh, totally, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting and watching it all day long um yeah. no so we it was about implicit bias training 
And what, what happened was we, I, I posted this thing to Facebook and then I posted a screenshot on my Twitter, which is what took off, that was, because we had an implicit bias workshop uh, that I had to be part of as part of being on a search committee. And we had a survey about it and I posted my, you know, I responded to the survey and I posted a couple of my answers and that's what took off. Um, and yeah, it's been, so, so the, you know, the tweet was critical of the workshop, not so much the, the, well, some of it was critical of the workshop itself, but more of it was critical of the idea of a workshop as opposed to doing other things. And you know, this is something that I, a lot of universities and a lot of organizations make people do these trainings and that kind of thing to try to address diversity, you know, to try to reduce discrimination, increase diversity. And, you know, my comment was that there are a lot of things that the university, my kind of closing comment was that there are a lot of things the university should be doing that cost money and resources, but that would actually make a difference that would be things like spending money on the kinds of things that will attract and retain diverse faculty and that kind of trying to locate this in a search committee and then locate it very narrowly in this particular kind of thing which is implicit bias as opposed to in like process or that kind of thing um, I think is, is sort of misplaced. So I, I, I posted this thing and uh, but it, it's funny because it it you know, it's just like, this is my first experience. Like, I imagine, like, you know, famous people who have a million followers or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. this happens to them all the time. But it's like, it, it started getting retweeted, and I was sort of watching my mentions, and that was, you know, kind of interesting. And then, like, I started noticing it was getting, like, because you, you sort of see, like, people will reply to it or whatever. And people who, I, I think most of the people who were retweeting it, my guess is, or most of the people, most of the responses seem to sort of be just kind of, yeah, this sounds good or whatever. But there, you know, then it gets picked up by people who are like, yeah, diversity sucks, you know, mm -hmm. and <laughs> it's like, did you read the <laughs> thing that I that you're retweeting, you know? <laughs> anyway, yeah, so that was kind of interesting. I don't, do you have you guys had to do implicit bias training in your universities, or you know, when you're on a search committee, do they make you do? Yeah, stuff we do. like that. No, no, <laughs> no, no. Like it's, it's Alabama. <laughs> we don't have to do that. <laughs> We've gotten rid of implicit bias. <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. Tuesday. I don't mean that. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's look. This the workshop was given by a colleague who does very good research on discrimination, and I, I don't. You know, I think he and I probably have some disagreements about the science. My my beef was more with. The university kind of seeing this as the solution mm -hmm. um you know and and these trainings there's they've been tested and there's not good evidence that they actually produce the outcomes that you want to produce there's mm -hmm. there's other ways to do that um and so you know making a couple hundred people spend a couple hours of their time going to a workshop for something that's kind of been tested and not found effective seems like there are other other things that a university could do mm -hmm. yeah but it was I feel funny like if we could just also... get search committees to stop talking about people's personal lives and whether they're likely to move that would already be a huge leap oh forward. man that would be amazing <laughs> Well, that yeah, that was so that I mean, that's one of the things, right, is that a lot of this stuff is explicit. It's it's what right. people talk about. And and in my department, we have a very open norm that we don't discuss that. And we, we talk about how we're not going to discuss that. If somebody 
brings it up usually innocently, but if somebody brings it up, everyone goes, "Hey, let's let's wait until we've made a decision, and then we can talk about you know whether they'll move and how we get them to and everything." Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's that's like good process, and but that's not implicit bias. Right, <laughs> that's <right>. like <laughs> out in the open, you know. Right. Um, well, to yeah. to play devil's advocate, oh, so I, I mean, it's hard to argue with the point that people have empirically tested these workshops and they don't have the outcomes that you would hope for. But I guess like the way that I would expect something like implicit bias training to work in principle would be to establish the like fundamental things that you need to accept in order to institute certain kinds of policies. Um, so like, for instance, like policies like, like blinding and um, things that remove I mean, to the extent that you can, like the subjective elements of, of judgment from, yeah, search committees and stuff like that. Like, uh, I think that you have to acknowledge the possibility of implicit bias before you make certain decisions about those kinds of policies. I think, and I think yeah. that in psychology, we're, I, I mean, I'm not sure about this, but I guess sometimes I think in psychology, we're used to like thinking of implicit bias as something that like, yeah, God, we've known about this forever. Like everybody already knows about this, but I'm not sure that that's true. I don't know. I think the problem is also with the, like the definition of implicit bias. So I think that a lot of the bias that I've seen on search committees and so on is not implicit, but framing it as implicit is less threatening to people. So telling people like, even though right. you don't feel biased or racist or sexist or whatever, mm-hmm. like it still seeps in and that like I I think it seeps in in ways that are not necessarily implicit but in ways that people would resent if you pointed it out right that's a good point so maybe you know maybe calling it implicit bias is maybe strategically okay but focusing only on the actual implicit biases is not yeah I see the deal I think if you know if you say like this is an area of research and and we think it might be part of the picture that's fine. And if, if that helps people be less defensive, that's fine. I think when, when you don't talk about the explicit stuff, mm-hmm. that's a problem because people yeah. don't think it happens. And, uh, but also I think the, the process and structural things yeah, right, right. just get left aside. So, you know, I, I it, you know, if, if talking about implicit bias gets people to buy into good process, then great, but I'd like to see the emphasis. And there was some of this in the workshop, you know, credit, credit where credit is due, but you know, search committees should, there are certain process things that come actually that, that were kicking around the IO literature, industrial organizational psychology literature for years before implicit bias was around about, you know, you do a job analysis and you set criteria and you standardize how you're going to evaluate people. And, and a lot of that stuff is also relevant to bias and discrimination because some of the things that happen are Mm-hmm. People will shift their standards just in order to get the, you know, the man or the woman or the, the whoever or the whoever else. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you know, like I, I think if I think a lot of people don't know that stuff, they don't know that you know people. I think a lot of, I mean, this comes up over and over again in the sort of organizational literature that people just want to trust their own judgment and they don't want anyone telling them how to decide. Mm-hmm. And I think the good process is usually a little bit more structured than people kind of want to mm-hmm. be. Mm-hmm. Um, but that just discussing up front, what are we looking for and how are we going to know when someone has it? And is that way of deciding whether someone has it going to 
capture everybody or there are going to be people who are going to be missing because they look different or they have different experiences like Mm -hmm. all that stuff is just good process and and i think it you know i think it's consistent with implicit bias in the sense that it if you think implicit biases are going to matter then that kind of stuff contains them Mm -hmm. um it's also consistent with explicit bias it's a Mm -hmm. it's a but it's a process issue and 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 i think the implicit bias emphasis can make some people think that the fix is inside of their heads. That's mm-hmm. probably my right, biggest concern. Right, right, is that right. they, oh, they that's think weird. That's like that's the opposite of my biased. interpretation. I mean, well, I, I, I know yeah. what you mean. Yeah, I think people take it that way. I, I don't know. I think psychologists might because we. I think we have a, an appreciation that implicit biases are really hard to change. But I think the first thing people think is inside their own heads. I need mm-hmm. to be a better person. Um, mm-hmm. I need to try to, you know, recognize my implicit biases, which is kind of a, it's not mm-hmm. a complete contradiction, but it's, yeah. a, it's, a, I mean, t- like, it's a fraught idea. Um, right. Yeah. So, I guess like, so, the, yeah. to me, the power of the idea of implicit bias is like, you, you can't control right. you it. You need structural you can't, things. You can't yeah. wait to feel like you're, you're like acting in a biased way and because of that you need process i guess yeah. i guess that's why i see the two things as complementary but yeah i, but I, I think do that, think you're right sanjay that like if you just tell people like this is a big problem you have implicit biases like you know if if that's all you tell someone then then it sounds like something where you feel like you have to change the way you think in order to improve yeah. it I think for me the bigger issue is the organizational and structural issues. That, yeah, I understand that. But maybe know, part it, of getting the, people the to buy into those is getting them to not trust their introspection. No, because I, I'm talking right. about the, the decision makers that are mm-hmm. deciding yeah, that the yeah. way we're going to diversify our faculty is by making everyone go to a bias workshop right, instead right. of by saying, we're going to put more money into our dual career hiring program. We're going to put more money into childcare, making, making childcare available to faculty. We're going to make cluster hires in areas that will attract diverse faculty. We're yeah. gonna have mentoring and support for yeah, people no, who I are agree. here. Yeah. And I and know. that's that stuff and I think the administration feels like we've done something and they and they also it takes the pressure off of them because other people feel like, oh, they've done something. Yeah. And to me, I've been very frustrated when we try to hire people who have partners and it's my university has a partner hiring program. And sometimes it works that well, but sometimes it doesn't. And so I'm like, look, you're telling a search committee to make better decisions. But if we make better decisions, the university needs it. to mm-hmm. be there to, to back us up. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes they are. And, and, uh, um, and I think once people get here, our department is very, very supportive and very good. But, you know, it's like there, there's if you're looking for like the stress point where this can break down, there are other places. Um, yeah. And so I, I feel like the larger systemic issues kind of doing saying we've done something takes the pressure off to, to make these other systemic changes. And when it's we've done something that's been tested and not shown to be effective, that's, I think, especially problematic. Can I ask you a question not about the content of your tweet, but about <laughs> having a tweet go viral? I was just going to say, sure. like, the bottom line is, like, I don't understand how people talked about this tweet so much. <laughs> it's obviously not that interesting. Uh. Well, I'm curious, so I haven't had a tweet go viral at all, but sometimes I'll get responses to my tweets that I just think are like not worth responding to and sometimes bordering on offensive or something like that. 
and I just ignore them. And I wonder, so that's easy for me to say. And I sometimes wonder like, why do other people not just ignore them? But I know that when it's on the level of what I get, it's easy to ignore. But mm-hmm. I imagine out of the like thousands of, you know, whatever responses or things like that, that you got, that there were a non-trivial amount that were probably like attacking or completely misunderstanding you or just idiotic in various ways. And maybe some that were offensive or threatening. I'm curious whether getting a taste of that what you think about the issue of like tone on social media and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was, I mean, as, as viral goes, this is like, this is big for me because, (laughs) you know, there are like Twitter accounts with like tens and hundreds of thousands of followers. Right. And, and it's a different scale, but this is kind of the first time I've sort of seen that. And, and obviously like, yeah, for, for some people being a Twitter presence is a big, you know, like media figures and that kind of thing. It's a mm-hmm. part of what they do. I, you know, I, in, in like, I would sort of check in on this, you know, a couple of times during the day as I was watching it kind of take off. And if somebody responded critically, but in a way that seemed like they wanted to engage, I thought it was worth engaging with people. Mm-hmm. I think that's a decision to make. Um, it was also very clear to me, yeah, that there were some people who were kind of not really reading this and using it for their own agenda. And then their fault, mm-hmm. you know, like these sort of high, mm-hmm. high degree accounts would then retweet it. Like, you know, there, there's a certain famous psychology professor in Canada who's mm-hmm. uh, generated a little bit of heat who like, you know, uh, um, approvingly compared me to James Damore. And I was like, okay, <laughs> dude, you did not read to the bottom of the thing that I wrote. Um, and then his followers show up in my mentions and whatever. And it's just like, you just got to ignore that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there, there's like, there's all kinds of people on the internet. Mm-hmm. And there's people who disagree with you and agree with you. And there's people who are going to be respectful and, and sort of engaging. And there's people who are going to be trolling or mm-hmm. abusive. And... I think just in general, like the, you know, the disagrees are more likely to be abusive, obviously, but uh, you just kind of, I mean, in a sense, like, I I mean, we could, we could do a whole, man, maybe we should someday do a whole episode about kind of social media and discourse, Uh, you know, some of this is just like, there's a huge range of human beings out there in the world, right? right? And, and I think we sometimes blame social media, blame the medium. um, And, and it's not that I don't like every medium has certain things it affords and certain things it constrains and, and, you know, Twitter and and everything else is no different, but some of this is just like, yeah, there, you know, this is not, you know, uh, my normal social media interactions are very much in my bubble. And when, when something, you know, uh, gets retweeted a bunch, um, that's going to be less true. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Anyway. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it would be fun to talk about it more sometime, but I guess we should move on to Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, so let's uh let's talk about our letter. Yeah, okay. So um the letter starts, Dear the Black Goat, I'm wondering what advice you have for junior researchers on how to network and even how to start collaborations. I'm a new assistant professor in psychology. I worked with one mentor in grad school and went straight to a faculty position. My mentor is not very social and my grad program was very small. My new department is small, and I'm the only one in my subfield, uh, cognitive psychology. For that reason, I don't know many people in my field. I'm hesitant to bother the acquaintances I have acquaintances I have formed, and nervous about breaking the status quo. As Sanjay mentioned in one episode, network is ne- doing cold introductions to people at conferences. But what is networking? Thanks, anonymous. Um, I like this question because 
for me, my understanding of what networking is changed a lot throughout um, my time in the field. So I guess maybe we've talked about this a little bit before, but I did originally think that networking was basically trying to find a famous person and impress them. I was like, how I thought you were supposed to go about it. Um, and of course, uh, of course that, that rarely works or it didn't, it never worked for me. <laughs> um, but I think a lot of, so I think that the word networking sounds like sleazy and annoying. Uh, but at the same time, I do think it's important to have it's important and nice to have a community within psychology of people who are interested in the same things that you are. Um, and so I've started to see networking more as just sort of like, yeah, making friendships with people who are interested in the same stuff that you are. And I think one of the big things that's changed, changed about my attitude towards networking is I, and, and this was true in, even when I was a senior graduate student, was to not really prioritize people who are more senior necessarily. Um, so going to CISP, is that the right one? Yeah, I think so. The Summer <laughs> Institute um, yeah. was like uh, very formative for me in that sense because I met all of these other graduate students who, you know, were looking for collaborators and were interested in the same stuff that I was. And they were people who were senior graduate students and many of them went on to academic positions and things like that. And so like that sort of experience in a way changed the way I think about networking. Um, what do you guys think? I think, yeah, I agree with all of that. I think also there's a big leap from getting to know somebody and like developing some kind of professional relationship with them to proposing to start a new project together and I think sometimes people don't appreciate how big of an ask that is and so I think now being more often on the other side of it I would say like that it's I don't think I don't think it's a lot to ask to like want to meet somebody you want to chat with them I think it's cool when people do that even like completely out of the blue but then I think it's a really big ask to start, like, ask to start a project together. Yeah, um, I agree. And I think sometimes people don't underestimate, like, the difference between those two asks. Um, and okay. so I would encourage people to do the first one more than they think is, like, I think it's more okay than people assume it is. And I think the second one might be a little less okay than people assume it is. Or, like, it's not, not okay. It's just, like, an awkward conversation to have because it's really hard to say no, you know, but it's also really hard to say yes. So. Yeah, I think I think Bear has some thoughts. She yeah, wants to. Definitely. It sounds like she wants to chime in. <laughs> yeah, I think she's people... like three rooms away. That's how loud she yeah. is. <laughs> I, I think people look at networking and they kind of look at what's what you know what sometimes happens without seeing sort of how it got there, which is like a junior person starts collaborating with a big high profile senior person and whatever and they they think they have to like go straight for that and my my own experience and you know kind of what I've seen with other people too is that it yeah it tends to be just sort of incremental it's it's I think the the point about like not feeling like you have to walk up cold because I and I did this too like I think a lot of people you you sort of you're told you're supposed to network you don't know what that means and so you walk up to uh like a person who's very prominent in your sub area introduce yourself and then get tongue-tied and say stupid things like mm -hmm. <laughs> i shouldn't say you i did this <laughs> many times right and it's this more 
I think it often tends to be this more organic process where it's forming, sometimes they're friendships, but sometimes they're just professional relationships, but doing things with people that you're more comfortable, that might be peers or might be like slightly more senior than you, you know, for, for me, it, it, where it got started was going to conferences and my, like my grad school buddies would we'd get together at conferences and then you know someone would bring along somebody who they'd met who was and I you know sometimes I do this sometimes and you wouldn't think of it as networking but it would be like or you're at the reception and somebody walks by and you know one of your friends knows somebody and then they introduce you or something and and to not put a lot of expectation on that that like oh this person right now now I have to form a bond with them right mm-hmm. now um so so sort of letting letting that happen um, and yeah, and, and looking for ways to make it kind of mutually beneficial. So uh, without being forced, right? So if in the course of a conversation with somebody, they mention that they've got a manuscript that's actually related to what you do and of interest to you, you ask them, hey, would you send me that manuscript? And then, you know, maybe you email them back, like, you know, a couple of nice comments or whatever, or, you know. There can be things like that, but not trying to sort of force it and not going into the interaction feeling like it's going to be a success or failure if you have or haven't met some specific yeah. goal or gotten something out of it. It's like any other relationship. Like it has yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like a lot like naturally. dating. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you want the kind that's not like a personal relationship, I would say Twitter. Twitter is like great if like if you're mainly looking for collaborators and you don't actually you're not looking for like an intellectual buddy right like if you want an intellectual buddy i would say like you have to develop that over time over you know starting with the occasional conference and then maybe you start yeah, keeping in touch and blah 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 but if yeah. you're looking to just find other people working on the same topic who will help you be the like well there's there's papers that form based on twitter or facebook groups and things like that where there's like many many authors i mean the obvious one is the response to redefining statistical significance but there's others i've seen form that way and it's for some of those papers, it's great to have a huge number of co-authors. They don't have a personal relationship with each other, but the, the paper benefits a lot from that. So I think if you want a purely like intellectual collaboration on a specific project, then I think Twitter is great for that. If you want a more personal professional relationship where you can have an ongoing discussion with someone about mutual interests, then I think that has to develop more naturally. You have to force the beginning part, like meeting them, but then the development of that should yeah. be more natural. I'm, I'm not sure that I would say that Twitter is so different that I think that a lot of when I see when I've seen collaborations start up on Twitter it's even there you know it's because people have interacted they know each other they've responded to each other's tweets they kind of know where the other person is coming from Um, and and there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of low visibility just sort of you know, small talk, like small stakes, just like people will, you know, kind of comment on things or joke around or do things that people do in real life too. Yeah. So I think it, but it, but it can be, uh, what I think is cool about social media is that one, if you're the only person, and we've talked about this before with respect to open science, right? That a Mm -hmm. lot of the open science community happened on Twitter because people were the only person they knew of in their physical space who, Mm -hmm. you know, in their department or whatever. And for the letter writer, they're saying they're the only cognitive person in their department. So social media Mm -hmm. could be a way to be part of 
an ongoing conversation with other cognitive people. So that that you know, so get, getting on there and just you know posting links and things that you find interesting, following people, but also approaching that as like I'm not going to go on Twitter with the goal of like by the end of the week I'm going to have a collaboration. Right. But you go on there because there's kind of interesting, stimulating yeah. conversation that you can be part of. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, yeah, I, I think there are obvious parallels to, to dating, but I think the best way to uh, go about networking is to just find people that you have things in common with mm-hmm. and hang out with them yeah. and talk to them, right? And, and then like and see what comes develops. of that. And I think <laughs> maybe there's like a social media version of that, and there's also the conference version of that, which is just like, yeah, it's not to like approach somebody with, uh, you know a study idea it's to go to dinners and probably yeah. to hang out at the hotel bar and stuff like that i mean and there's even I think, the, yeah there's but. even online dating platforms for collaboration which is what i like to call study swap <laughs> and it's like science accelerator so if you, yeah. if you just want to cut straight to the the bottom line the collaboration right. go on study swap it's like, or it's, science accelerator. yeah the tinder of there's no there's no <laughs> Uh, yeah, None of that. no. Let's and, go out and... for a drink five times before we start a collaboration. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's a that's a good comparison. But also, yeah, like the the sort of, I mean, I think the like a, a thing that you can do because I, I I do I appreciate that. I mean, all this stuff I think is is true. But if you're when you're really new to it, it's sort of like where do I get started? Like it, it, once it gets started, like once you've got kind of some people you know and hang out with, then it starts to build. It's that first step. And and that's often what's intimidating, and that's why at the very beginning people do stuff like I did, where they walk up to somebody and shake their hand and get tongue tied. Yeah. I, I mean, one way Absolutely. to get started on that is to to you know proactively you can if you see somebody that's giving a talk and you're interested in the work that they're doing, and especially I think if it's someone who's more of a peer or more like yeah around your career stage or maybe a tiny bit ahead. Like I've certainly I've done this with people and had people do this with me to say, hey, I'm I saw you're going to be at this conference. I'm really interested in your work. I wonder if you'd like to get a coffee and chat afterwards. And so that that's like a specific concrete thing that you can do. Also, and doing it with someone that you think you'll be able to have a conversation with. So it's not the like and you're not approaching them because they're famous or because they're mm -hmm. good for networking. You're approaching them because you substantively have something in common. So that's I think there are some some of these ways to like do that first step because I think the first step is often right, right. The, hardest. the hardest I would mm-hmm. also say that if you're not comfortable with any of this stuff that's okay too like yeah I think that I am not I don't I, as as much as I like big collaborative projects in principle I like the idea of them I want to support them they don't really appeal to me that much and the idea of having a bunch of collaborators doesn't appeal to me at all like it just sounds super stressful to me maybe it's the introverted part of me but I like the idea of like just fostering a few deeper relationships with a few collaborators that I have over time, multiple projects with repeatedly. And there are people that I also know personally very well and can tell them if I'm having a hard week and I'm not going to be able to get back to them or whatever, um, which may also have parallels with (laughs) my dating preferences. But yeah, I was just going to say, I think it's okay if you only want a few deeper collaborators and you don't have to have 10 or 15 collaborators that you regularly, you know, talk about research with it depends you can do what what works for you yeah cool well should we should we have we have we have we answered the question yeah i think the answer is networking is the academic version of dating (laughs) yes 
and don't don't, don't try it. if you if you want to if you want to get laid on the first date uh, there are places for that but don't don't make it your goal for regular dating um, let it let it happen um, okay so uh, cool well um, thank you to anonymous for the letter and yeah if you're listening people listening and want to get in touch with us letters at the blackgoatpodcast.com is our email address and uh, thanks to everybody who listens. And if you're new to us, or if you're not new to us, but you don't know where to find us on social media, we have a Twitter account, at BlackGoatPod. We've got a Facebook account, facebook.com slash BlackGoatPod. And uh, all three of us are, are live human beings who occasionally, well, two of us occasionally drop in on Twitter. Uh, Alexa, um, you'll have to chase down her Snapchat or something. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So we wanted to, for our main topic today, talk about the year 2017 in review. This is our last podcast of the year. And, and I mean, w- one big thing that happened this year to all three of us is we started a podcast, uh, which which has been a lot of fun and really interesting. But a lot of other stuff is, has happened in our in our lives uh, and, and of course, 2017 has been kind of a crazy year. And I don't know, maybe the craziness is a good place to start because we talked about it on a previous episode and, the, you know, the sort of American political situation and everything like that. For, for me, at least, 2017 has been, I think we, we wanted to mostly talk about personal st- stuff, but 2017 is the political has felt very personal this year in a way that it hasn't before. One of the things that I, I realized that it's become, you know, there's so many things that have changed, right? That people talk about normalizing things in politics. One of the things personally for me or at my sort of interface with politics is I became, I started talking about politics on Twitter, which I more or less avoided doing prior to the election, the, the most recent presidential election, because I kind of most of my Twitter stuff is professional, but it was like, it was just on my mind so much, and it was interfacing with being an academic and being in higher education, but also just like, yeah. So it's been a crazy year. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that inauguration was also during SPSB, so there was that intersection between the political and our professional lives. I remember bringing T-shirts that Alexa and another friend war to the protest while I was on a panel. And That's how I got my grad student this year. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, she like Cassie jokes about how she saw me give that talk and then nasty woman t-shirt and made yeah. her want to work with me. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it drove away many as well. During the inauguration um, protest, I was wearing my nasty woman t-shirt on a panel on I don't even remember what at SPSB. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been an I think a pretty interesting year to live in Alabama. Um, so I live definitely like still very much in a bubble in Alabama. Um, but the sort of like, it's been sort of an emotional roller coaster this year because, um, I mean, there was the presidential election and I remember, so I was at the same bar for the presidential election and then the most recent election in Alabama. Um, and uh, the first one, everybody I knew was very sad. And the most recent one where Doug Jones was elected uh, was people were very happy. Um, and so I don't know. I think like 
the identity of sort of like Tuscaloosa and ac- academics in Tuscaloosa and the sort of like emotional ride that people have gone on this year has been pretty um, interesting to watch and also um, interesting but not always fun to experience. Have you felt personally, I don't know, the, the you know, being in, in Alabama, you know, as you mentioned, you're in kind of, it's a red state, but you're in a fairly progressive enclave within Alabama. Have you have you felt personally affected by sort of yeah pro- that kind of proximal influence of being in Alabama or, or other kinds of things? Uh, I guess so. Um, I guess in a way, I think that I'm more exposed to the polls than I ever have been before. Um, so I have, I guess, more exposure to like sort of people at the more conservative end of the political spectrum than I have before. Um, but at the same time, and I think this is a strange coincidence given that this sort of happened when I moved to Alabama, I also have a group of friends that I think are really far at the other end. And maybe that is a polarizing influence of living in Alabama, actually. So it's like, it's like in Alabama, like people who are not football fans are really not football fans. Like they (laughs) fucking hate football, (laughs) you know? And I think that it's sort of true of liberals too. Mm Um, so I wonder, I mean, I don't know if you've been there long enough to say, but more generally outside of Alabama too, I wonder how much has changed. So I know for me, like my political activity, like I went to more protests in the last year than the rest of my life combined. And like before this year, being a woman was not a big part of my identity. I, I've always, you know, or a long time identified as a feminist. I've always been interested in gender issues and sexual orientation yeah. issues and stuff like that. But like, I remember, I don't know why I was watching a TV show and the song, I enjoy being a girl came on. And I have this weird memory that feels like a false memory, but I don't think it is of having to memorize and sing that song in school for something like for drama class. And it's all about like, <laughs> I like being girly and blah, blah, blah. And I was like reflecting on how I always felt like being a girl was not a big part of my identity. But then now I have like, several t-shirts that say nevertheless she persisted a nasty woman t-shirt i have a framed yeah. print of nevertheless she persisted and like it just all of a sudden it's like a really big part of my identity the me too stuff obviously mm-hmm. that i have a personal connection to and you know all of that like it's it's been really interesting how much being a woman has the meaning of that has changed a lot for me this year and I don't know if like people in Alabama who being a liberal maybe their the identity I mean it's changed in the last week um, I'm sure, but also uh-huh. I wonder if that's changed in the last year. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I think everywhere in the U.S., and this is true of Alabama too, like people's political activity has gone up a lot. Um, so that's definitely true of the people that I'm friends with. Like I have a good friend um, who was really involved in campaigning for Doug Jones, and like that was a result of like the previous election, the presidential election. So, yeah, I think, I mean, I think her story is in a way sort of representative and symbolic. Like she was so frustrated by what happened in the presidential election that she decided like that she was going to do something very concrete about it. And she did something I really admire, which she's, she's an introvert and she went around to people's homes and, you know, like just like made them aware that there was an election coming up. And, and I mean that, I think those kinds of efforts were huge in 
in the Senate election. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another um, big kind of thing that stands out this year for me was the Charlottesville protest. Well, so we had just been in Charlottesville for SIPs. Right. And then, mm-hmm. But then also we were together when that happened and when Heather Heyer was killed. And I remember we were at the Beer Fest in Bend. Do you guys remember? Yes. And th- yeah, like, and then I started crying and then sunscreen got in my eyes and then I couldn't stop crying for the rest of the day. <laughs> Um, I feel like but, we took a picture and it still looks like you were really crying obvious, in the picture. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, yeah, like I think that because so many of us had become people who could have been at that protest, yeah. like I think that's one of the things that made it so scary. Yeah. Yeah, I think the, you know, it's, it's I mean, who knows what the, what things are going to be like a year, two years, five years from now, but how much of this will last, how things will change. But it, I think that's been, I feel like that's been a theme for a lot of people that just becoming more politically active and also kind of what you were saying, Samin, about how <clears throat> sort of politization, politicization of your gender identity um, mm-hmm. in a way that is, you know, you'd never not, not only sort of identify more as a woman, but identify more as a woman in a political way. Mm-hmm. And that's, right. that's, you know, that's been interesting, uh, I think, to see that happening with a lot of people with a lot of different kinds of identities that suddenly feel threatened or feel at least part of the political discourse. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's been a big thing. The, for me, there was something that happened more than a year ago, but like a few weeks before the election that coincided with the election and other things in my life that I think had a really big impact. I don't think this person knows that they had such a big impact, but in October of last year, Bobby Spellman, I think it was Ada Lovelace Day, and so people were tweeting nice things about each other. Women scientists were tweeting nice things about each other. And Bobby Spellman wrote something about how she admired me for always being fearless in both my professional and personal life. And I think that I felt like I was really flattered that she said that, and also I felt like I better live up to that. And then the election mm-hmm. happened and then stuff happened in my personal life that I had to have guts to deal with. And like mm-hmm. all this stuff happened. I just kept thinking about her tweet and about like not wanting to disappoint like that. Yeah. That reputation. Yeah, that or wanting idea, to live up yeah. to that. Yeah. And that has had a huge impact on me for the last year, I yeah. think. Yeah. So yeah, what, cool. what other things have been going on with you guys in 2017 when you look back it was funny when when we were preparing for this. We said we we're going to do 2017 in review. I f- I feel like I I couldn't think of anything. And mm-hmm. to me, <laughs> I think you said you had like a list of like 20 things or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> what, what one else of was them going is on I finally got attached to my dog. And I know that if you follow me on like Facebook or Instagram, you think that I'm completely obsessed with my dog. But that's actually a relatively new thing. She's like she's ten and a half years old. And I'm like, finally, like, I miss her when I travel now. And I'm like, I want to spend, like, I literally, like, last night, I turned down a friend who invited me to dinner because I needed to spend time with my dog. And I know that sounds crazy. I feel like this is a really adaptive feature of your biological clock. (laughs) Yeah, maybe that's it. I mean, I think it's because she's going to die. She's, like, really, really old. And she's clearly on her way out. And But, yeah, it also says something about my personality that it took me 10 years to get attached (laughs) to my dog. But also I want to clarify, I came home on a Friday night to hang out with my dog because I'm only home three days for, like, a three-week period. And so I really wanted to, like, she might die on my next trip, you know? Like, I need to spend some time with her when I'm home. Okay. Anyway, I'm not that crazy. Does this mean, like, in three or four years (laughs) you're going to miss me? 
maybe eight years. <laughs> so it's like a human years, dog years. I actually thing. think I've never gotten to the point where I miss. There's somebody in my life that I miss a lot, like regular. Like missing is not something I do. So it's a weird feeling to miss Bear when I travel. Like mm-hmm. that's weird to consistently. Like I, there are obviously things that make me miss people, but as God. a default mode, that when I'm away from an individual, I miss them. No, that doesn't happen. Your life is so easy. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> Missing people's hard. The the best thing about my life, my life is really easy. So the best thing that happened in 2017 is I got a property manager. So now my life is really easy. Which I don't even really know say, what a property manager is. Yeah, what does that mean? Yeah, so this is a life hack. Like the best advice I can give to people if you have enough money to do this, which is like obviously you have to have it's a privileged thing to be able to do. But I own my own home, but I cannot I can't stay on top of it. I just don't understand how people remember to like get the gutters cleaned or know who to call. Or like when I have to talk to plumbers, they drive me nuts. Or like I once called somebody to fix the air conditioning downstairs in my house and they came out several times and looked and looked and looked. And it turns out I don't have air conditioning downstairs in my house. (laughs) And they were really mad at me that I didn't know this. And I was like, but it's your job to like tell me that I don't have air conditioning downstairs in my house. Anyway, I was like, I'm good at my job. Like just, I don't know. I don't know what questions to ask about my house or when things need fixing or whatever so then i had a friend who rents and she was like oh I, we just call the property manager whenever we need something or whatever they know when to fix when to like things need to be checked and so then i was like oh i'll just get a property manager so i called her property manager and i was like could you manage my property and she's like yeah are you the landlord or the renter and i was like both <laughs> like can you and it, it was like a weird conversation but eventually i got her to understand what i wanted which was i wanted her to treat me like i was renting but also I was the landlord. And so now like I pay her a monthly fee and she takes care of everything. So she has a gardener that comes whenever I, you know, like I don't do a lot of stuff. I don't need my, my, my garden does not, my yard does not look like I have a gardener. Like it's not a regular thing, but she does the bare minimum of like what needs to be done. So my house doesn't fall apart. And it turns out that it pays for itself because she has like really good deals with all these people. Anyway, this is like way too long of a rant, but if you hate household stuff, and I wish people could some... see how happy you are right yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> it made my life so much better. I hated, hated, hated dealing with like plumbers oh, and AC yeah. and all that. My wheels are turning. So because, yeah, like we, I mean, I just, a lot of times it, I don't have time to deal mm-hmm. with shit. But also, I mean, we, we had so much crap happen mm-hmm. to our house because we had, we, Eugene had a huge ice storm. Actually, it's almost exactly a year ago. I think the anniversary was this week. And I guess this is a part of my 2017 interview, although I wasn't really thinking about it, is like our house had a hole in it for most of the year because we had a, we had, Eugene had an awful ice storm last year and Eugene is full of trees. It's beautiful when they're not falling down, but they started falling down because they all got covered with ice. So we had three trees hit our house, including one that came through the roof and into the kitchen, like just Mm -hmm. pierced right through. And so... You know, which could have been awful if someone had been in the kitchen. It might have mm-hmm. seriously injured or killed somebody. But uh, fortunately, we were not in the kitchen, but only because the power had gone out. Because normally we would have been. Yeah. Anyway, whatever. So, yeah. So, and we just, it's we've had to deal with so much shit with our house with, like, yeah. damage to it from the ice storm. But then also uh, just upkeep and that kind of thing. And I, it never would have occurred to me to get a property manager to just be like. It's amazing. Hey. 
it's your deal to like you know yeah. deal with the contractors and yeah so she gets like multiple stuff. bids on stuff and so she saves me money because she knows who to call she gets a better deal because she manages many properties so they give her a discount and by getting competitive bids she saves me money so that makes up for the money i pay her so i don't i think it's oh. costing me nothing and it's saving me from ever having to talk to these people and like just saving me time and stress and yeah it's like the best thing i did this year <laughs> <laughs> all right so that's the means this high makes point. me think Alexa, it's possible you... for me to own a house one day because i would not <laughs> i would not do those things yeah i so, didn't do yeah. those things either I, I feel like the the high points discussion is is like over now. Like Alexa, do you have anything that even I don't have anything that good. 2017. I feel like for me, um, 2017 has been the year of hobbies. Um, so like you know when people ask you like what do you do outside of work or like what are your hobbies, I never have an answer to that. My answer to that is like I, you what well, I watch TV and I hang out with my friends like. <laughs> Um, but this year I actually had hobbies. Um, so I started playing chess with my friend Anna in the summer. Um, and like, I'm, I'm like mediocre at, at best at chess. Um, but we played frequently enough. Um, and so we ended up having a, we held a chess tournament, which is like actually one of the highlights I think for me um, because it was fun to it's something that's nice about living in Tuscaloosa too is that you can like organize these kinds of things in the community and like people like show up to them and um, you know like a coffee shop hosts it and donates money to your uh, for your chess tournament prize and stuff like that so it was like a really cute moment I think to have this this chess tournament that we advertised via poster that we posted in like public libraries and stuff um so it was fun and That's then super cool. um, who like what who showed up was it like kids adults like all kinds of different people like yeah who shows yeah. up to a chess tournament via flyer the good question so there were some kids um some people came because i know them so they're friends of mine that like were interested in playing chess um, and because Anna knows them. And then some people were like really like random people in the community who like go to, there are a couple of places in Tuscaloosa that people frequently like go to play chess. Um, so some were, some of the people were them and they're really good at chess. So a couple of them were like in the chess club at Alabama. Um, and so they were the ones who like got to the final round and stuff like that. And they have, so turns out, there's um there's a lot to know about running a chess tournament before you do it, so I wouldn't recommend just winging it like I did <laughs> because like, you have to make decisions about like uh, about if like if you had a how... property manager, they could take care of this. For you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like so you if you want to do things like remotely officially, you need to have chess clocks and you need to figure out how like your brackets are going to work and all of that stuff. So we, so we sort of like played it by ear and it worked out. Um, but thankfully some of the people who came sort of knew what they were doing and, you know, and also there's an app for chess clock. If you're ever wondering. Oh, cool. Actually there are many. Um, so chess is one of my hobbies. Um, for the first time I have a gym. So, and this is actually really lame, and now I regret that I brought this up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I go to I go to bar gym classes now, and I'm like really obsessed with it. And I like 
I'm like best friends with everybody who goes to the bar classes. It's like, oh my god, you're such a cliche. <laughs> I know it's terrible. Um, and then the the last hobby. So I, I when I was younger, I played piano, but I haven't. Um, I didn't play for a long time. And then uh, this past summer, um, my girlfriend and I had broken up, and I decided that my coping mechanism would be to buy a. It's it's technically a weighted keyboard. Um, so it's like a keyboard, but it sounds like a piano, you know, the keys make a different noise depending on how hard you press on them. Um, so yeah, it's like a piano for somebody who can't afford this money and space that you need for a piano. Um, and so I started sort of like relearning how to, how to play the piano. And I started playing at open mic, which is the most stressful thing I ever do. (laughs) Wow. That's... uh... So, so it's not just something you noodle around on at home. You, you like, you go out and you perform. Yeah, I mean, open mic is not like a real performance, but yes, I play in front of other people at a bar. <laughs> That's awesome. That's I man, I I like I got butterflies in my stomach just hearing you say that because yeah, right. I, I you know I I I play guitar a little bit. I I played piano when I was a kid, although I I don't really. But I play guitar a little bit, and I occasionally get together with a friend. But like the idea of playing in front of other people, I can, I like my palms are sweating right now just thinking yeah, of it. <laughs> I'm so I, impressed is, that you do that. It is literally the most stressful thing I ever do. Like, and it's, yeah, I can't. I haven't gotten really better at it. Maybe a little bit. The first time was really really hard. Um, I find it way more stressful than any kind of like public speaking because the problem is like okay, if you're nervous and you're public speaking then you can just like pause um yeah, right. but but you can't pause and and like the can. nervousness is <laughs> physically manifested in, yeah right exactly in your hands like your hands are just like I'm shaking yeah, yeah. i yeah, played sorry. the banjo yeah. the- at the end of my sabbatical fellowship uh, we had like a jokey talent show and i had been taking banjo lessons so i played in front of my friends and i knew they loved me when they like gave me a really nice ovation at the end and it was terrible like i paused like five times <laughs> it was so bad but yeah, uh-huh. that's that's amazing that you do that. Yeah, it's it's um uh, it takes me. So I think that I am pretty nervous about doing anything in public. Like I'm pretty nervous about public speaking, and at this point, I've just done that so many times that it's okay now. Um, but I feel like this is like taking me back to like my undergraduate presentation days, where I'm just like so affected by an audience. It's like yeah. crazy. And it's weird because I can't anticipate it. It's like psychologically kind of interesting. So I'll practice at home and I'll be like, I could play this in my sleep. Mm-hmm. And then there's an audience and I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. Like, I, I don't. What do I do with my hands? Like, yeah, yeah. I didn't develop any hobbies, but I went through a breakup this year, too. And it was kind of a, a major turning point for me because it's been interesting. I basically like was in a relationship half the year and then have been single half the year. And it's been really interesting to think about that and think about like the consequences of that for my professional life and for other things. And like actually the same week that I, that my relationship ended, I was reading an interview on the SPSP website with the editor in chief, outgoing editor in chief of PSPB, Dwayne Wagner. And in the interview, like they ask him about what it's like being an editor and how stressful is it and blah, blah. And he says like, well, thank God, like my wife is supportive and she like makes it possible for me to do all this and blah, blah. And I knew that my relationship was about to end when I was reading this. And I was like, hmm, is like, is my life, is it going to be like 
impossible for me to keep up with all my work and do everything else when I'm single. Like, how much do I depend on that support and what is it going to be like? And and since then, like talking to friends, like some of them have said things like, you know, I can't imagine like not knowing that there's somebody there no matter what or things like that. And what's been interesting Mm -hmm. for me is that it's been okay. Like that's been a really interesting realization and even more than okay. Like there's ways in which they're beneficial things. Um, So one thing I keep thinking of, I know it's really cheesy, but the Janis Joplin line, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. And I know that's supposed (laughs) to be like a, like a, a dig on freedom, a knock to freedom, yeah. but actually having nothing left to lose is an amazing position to be in. And it makes me think about like all the ways in which having something to lose restrains us. And so like, since, you know, in the last six months, I've taken more risks and done things that if anybody else depended on me, I may not have been able to do those things, or I may have decided not to just because I didn't want to put someone else in the line of fire. So for example, going on the record about uh, sexual harassment, was something that I don't think I would have done if I needed to look out for anyone else but myself. Even an adult, like I'm not, I don't mean kids, but like even if I was in a relationship, I think it would have been a lot harder for me to make a decision to do something that kind of put me in the line of fire. Or other things, just really like committing myself to things I care about politically or, or professionally or whatever. There's like, there is a silver lining to being like, I don't have anything to lose. It's just me. I have job security. I have, you know, everything I need. I can handle like whatever happens. And yeah, so that's been kind of, I didn't expect that. I didn't expect, I didn't expect things to move in the positive direction in terms of like feeling this sense of having security, right? Like you don't, you think that being in a relationship gives you more security than not being in a relationship, but there's this weird way in which I feel more secure. There's just less at at stake. There's less to lose, I guess. Do you, do you know why you feel that way this time? So, I mean, Mm -hmm. I've known you for long enough that I've known you times when you're single and you're not less pumped about it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know, but it has been really different this time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure. I wonder, I wonder if some of it is, I mean, we talked earlier about sort of like, feeling politicized in different ways like yeah. the combination of having nothing to lose and something to use that for mm-hmm. you know i mean I, i've thought right. about this with respect to tenure right that you know i try to every once in a while look back and say okay i've got tenure it exists for a reason am i it's a it's a yeah. you know it's this i mean i don't know if i'd call it a privilege but it's a you know it, it's a, a thing and and it's meant to be used um, but you have to have something to use it for. Yeah. And a lot of people, you know, the, the temptation is just to li- slip into a comfortable life because you've got this security. And so, yeah, I wonder, Samin, do you feel like yeah. one of the things that's different is like you had some place to, to like use that freedom? Yeah, I think that's a big, I think that's two things. Yeah. I think that's one of them and the uh, and then that's a big one. And the other one is, and this is like cheesy and whatever, but I think it's true is that my friendships are so strong now. So like, I mean, even literally when the, the conversation I had in which my relationship ended, I was surrounded by friends. Actually, I was in Bruges. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie in Bruges, but it wasn't anything like the movie, Uh but it was this weird place to be. It's like this picturesque place. And I was on the phone with my boyfriend, knowing that we were going to break up and my friends were just outside having beers waiting for me and then and I I happened to be traveling with a bunch of friends and so I spent like the weeks around before and after the breakup around 
friends and colleagues and just had this like support. Actually, a really funny story is the next day I was traveling to a conference and I arrived at the conference and there was a big conference dinner and I showed up at the conference dinner and everyone had already sat down and someone had saved me a seat, which was really sweet. And I just felt like it was nice. It was people that I knew, some people there I knew pretty well. And I just felt really happy to get to go to this thing and immediately have like a distraction and support. And Chris Crandall was sitting across from where I was going to sit down. And he goes, Samin, where's your handsome boyfriend? <laughs> and it was really hilarious because I had been thinking, like, how am I going to tell, like, my friends at the conference that I just broke up? Like, how is it going to come up? And blah, blah. And Chris took care of that for me. I feel kind of bad for him because I think I think he might have thought he put me in an awkward position. But actually, it was a great, like, lighthearted way I could be like, yeah. actually. Um, That's nice. But, yeah. And I had, like, Rich Lucas was here on sabbatical for the whole first half of the year. And it was before the breakup it's still like it was just a really nice way to build up our friendship and then I've like developed even better friendships with the friends I have in the Bay Area so now I spend you know like I go to the Bay Area at least once a week often and actually this podcast too like I have all these regular things and regular sources of support that when my friend told me like I don't know how you do it like I would miss having someone I know who's always there and I told her I was like well I've had a lot of things happen since being single that where I needed somebody there and someone has always been there not always the same person but I've never felt like I need someone there and then there wasn't someone yeah. there and that's a that's new for me like my friendships I, I've always had I think perfectly fine friendships but now I think they're at a level where that's just not an issue yeah but also the yeah, things Sanjay said <laughs> I identify with that a lot obviously like I think that um usually I'm not too too worried about being single and I think friendships is a huge part of that I mean my my friendships are just such a huge part of my life and they're I rely so heavily on them yeah what about you Sanjay has there been any what about me I don't know anything <laughs> that stick out in your mind in the, in the year? yeah I so I mean Two things, well, a couple, of, a couple of things. One is, it's kind of funny what you talking about, like breaking up, making, being, <laughs> celebrating anything in mine are both about like, you know, my my wife and my family. But uh, this was our tenth anniversary, and so we uh, we went back to Palm Springs where we got married. And my parents and Kristen's parents came, and then our friends who were are uh, um, uh, who are part of our wedding ceremony, our friend Hal, who actually conducted the ceremony, and Carrie, who was part of the the wedding as well. Um, and we all but with our kids too. So Carrie and Hal have two kids, and we have one. and and so it was just this like really nice, you know, we we yeah, we went back to where we got married, and it was like family and friends and all, you know, it was, yeah, it was just this great experience to be together with all these people that are really important to us Mm -hmm. um and then another another thing that is kind of in a couple of different ways sort of a peak experience or something was the eclipse which Mm. sounds really cheesy uh (laughs) so oregon so eugene is not in the path of the eclipse but the the eclipse the totality went by about 30 or 40 miles north of us and so we and everybody was talking about how crazy it's going to be and so we got a campground for like an insane amount of money that we paid too much for because everyone was saying every, everything's going to be, you know, whatever. Anyway, so we go to this camping place, but it was, a, you know, we were talking about it leading up to it for quite a bit. And, and so 
my son especially was like really excited about it and we we went camping which we've never camped before as a family and and you know we drove up and and it was it felt like a in in multiple ways a very kind of pure positive experience it was pure in the sense that it was you know when we travel when we go on vacations it's either like to visit family which is very comfortable but it's routine and it's it's kind of and it's got all the dynamics of visiting family or it's like a big vacation and there's like planning and whatever and this was just kind of like it was it was like we were there for one night and and it was so it wasn't like a big it just but it was so it wasn't this like big thing we had to plan or whatever but also it meant that I could be completely not thinking about you know, it's like, you know, how when you're on vacation, you spend three days thinking about work before you forget about it or whatever. And anyway, so it was this kind of like moment that kind of got to be a break to be just with my wife and my son. Um, and that my, you know, it was a, this shared experience that we're all really excited about. And then the actual eclipse itself was this this, this kind of experience I feel like I don't get to have anymore that I, you know, you have a lot of this, or I don't know, I shouldn't generalize, but I, I had a lot more of these kinds of like sort of peak openness experiences when I was younger, you know, whether it's like live music or other kinds of things. Um, and it was just this seeing the actual eclipse, you know, I cried, which I don't, cry at anything I did well actually before my son was born I literally never cried at anything like I didn't cry at movies I didn't cry and I've become a big baby since I had a kid but (laughs) you know so it's like this this sort of amazing aesthetic experience and then to be standing there with my son holding him and he's excited and it only lasts a couple of minutes and you know the image is still Thankfully, not literally burned in my retina, (laughs) figuratively burned in my memory. (laughs) I managed to get the glasses back on before, you know, Um, like I can I can close my eyes and I can visualize this like sort of visual beauty. And but then also like the fact that it was and it was a social experience because we're in this huge campground with all people who'd been there to see the eclipse. And so you hear like people's very authentic reactions like people weren't ooing and eyeing you know which is kind of like a cliched thing it was just like you could hear people having these sort of emotional reactions around you so it was it was that was kind of like uh just this combination of this kind of experience this kind of aesthetic experience but experiencing it with sort of a crowd of people generally but then also with two of the people that are the most important people in the world to me um that's was awesome. was cool. Yeah, yeah. That's so nice. I don't. It's totally cheesy because no. the eclipse. I've. I feel like the like. I don't think. <laughs> I, I mean, I it's like cheesy, people, but it's. I think it's really sweet. People talk about the eclipse the way like, I don't know. It's not. It's like you know, like people who get really annoying about Burning Man or CrossFit <laughs> or, or things like that. It's like I feel like I'm at high but risk I, of becoming one of those people no, about the eclipse. But I totally get what you mean about like the high openness experiences that you don't have very much anymore and like I actually never had them at like museums I never understood people could stare at a painting forever and feel moved and so I've always like wondered what that feels like and I've very very rarely had it in my life and I think an eclipse would be a candidate for something that could elicit that reaction in me and I I did have one this year too and it was with my mom actually so kind of uh, similar themes to yours we went to Hawaii to the big island and we went up to Mauna Kea which is like where there's a big observatory and we went at night and you watch the sunset and then could see so many stars. It, it also like brought tears to my eyes, just like looking up at the sky and seeing 
all these galaxies and stars and all these things and just like blew my mind and I didn't want to leave and yeah it was and I also had a less intense but also like very touching uh, vacation with my dad where we went back we were in France and we went we were just like had a rental car and decided on a whim to drive to this place where we used to go camping when I was a kid when we lived in France and it was this lake and we just spent the day there and it was just really really nice and like in this cheesy but sincerely cheesy kind of way so yeah those experiences are, are nice yeah, I don't know why they're harder to come by as I've got. I mean, some of it is just the opportunities are less, yeah. but also I feel like actually I saw a ton of live music this year, which I've mm-hmm. been kind of out of doing for a while because when you have a little kid, it's hard to get out. But, you know, we've we've managed to you know get out more and more sometimes with him. He's now old enough to go to concerts sometimes and sometimes not. And I thoroughly enjoyed all of it. And I, I, you know, I definitely had those sort of approaching those kind of peak experiences sometimes. That's why I used to love going to Mm -hmm. live music, going to raves when I was younger, going to clubs, whatever Mm -hmm. was like, you know, not about the like, I didn't go to nightclubs to be like cheesy schmoozy guy. I went, you know, to like get lost dancing and listening to music. And it's but but I feel like the having the the level of sort of immersion in those experiences has gotten harder as I get older even even conditional on like yeah I have less opportunity but when I do what about DJing the ARP dance party was that a peak experience <laughs> <laughs> that was Definitely great you did a great experience. job oh yeah that was <laughs> hey, if you if you guys want to dance to Sanjay's DJing you should come to ARP or or so so Z and I uh, who DJ the ARP uh, they the European Conference on Personality. They, they, the organizers asked us to DJ nice. again. So, Come to Croatia so in July. If you're, if you're listening to this and you're on the fence about going to ECP, <laughs> this, this can be the thing that puts you over. Yeah. <laughs> and then you can have a peak experience in 2018. Uh, yeah. Well, I think we're, uh, I think we're, we're should we, I don't know. Should we wrap up? Is there are there Any burning other things burnings, that yeah. we didn't get to? Burning or burning. No, I mean I want to participate in your peak experience discussion, but then I decided I wasn't going to talk about any drugs. So (laughs) (laughs) maybe that's I. I haven't done nearly. I've hardly done any drugs in my life. Maybe that'll like that. It's like you know you have to beat the high. So like what can beat the eclipse? Like cocaine or something. (laughs) (laughs) I think yeah. Keep holding out, you know, because then you can save those for. Uh, Cool. Well, this has been fun. Um, Yeah. uh, this is this has been really interesting so uh yeah i guess to people listening thanks for listening if you made it this far and uh we'll we'll talk to you guys again in 2018 the, the podcast is going to keep going happy new year everybody yeah yeah happy, yeah. happy everything that you celebrate and yeah. uh we'll we'll see you all next time mm-hmm.